It's actually a great day to be new because we're starting a new three-week series for Advent. And, and the title of this new series is called Let the Earth Receive Her King. Okay, my name is David. I'm one of the guys on staff here. And, I, and I've kind of prepared this, this first message because it's, what's interesting is this title is Let Earth Receive Her King, right? Which is actually a, a line from kind of one of the most famous kind of Christian hymns that we have, a hymn called Joy to the World. And the first two lines of this hymn, they're really similar to what we just sang. But it's basically saying, joy to the world. This is like proclamation. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Right? And what's so interesting is like we have this, this moment of Christmas. And kind of immediately surrounding the, the, the birth of Jesus, you have all these like songs that start to break forth. Like angels are singing these first songs. right? But the church has kind of always surrounded this, this idea of Christmas with Songs like proclaiming goodness and joy and peace to the world because the king has come. And this title, the joy to the world, the Lord has come, the earth receiver king, it's basically like a, a summation of like the very first chapters of the New Testament, right? Because there's all the authors of the New Testament are trying to like give us a picture of who Jesus is. Like who is this one who's being born in a manger? The, the Bible's trying to tell us that, well, he isn't just like a prophet and he isn't just like a great leader. He isn't just like a teacher, and he isn't even like someone who's going to come and start this like new religious movement. But like the beginning of the New Testament says that he's being born. It's like a royal birth. He's being born as a king. And not just a king, but the king. And immediately after he's born, right, angels, like they appear and they start singing and declaring his birth. And the reason that there's such joy, right, and the reason that we write songs about this, and the reason that we, like, spend time, like, st- like stopping to study Acts, but then, like, having this little mini-series here is because it isn't just that Jesus was born, but it's the, the reason that there's songs that are happening, the reason there's joy, the reason that, like, angels, messengers from God, like, come down from heaven to earth and begin to, like, sing and declare, like, the peace of this king who's been born is because Jesus is coming as a fulfillment to the promises that God has been speaking into our world for thousands and thousands of years. It didn't just happen, but it's a fulfillment of all that God has promised. Jesus is the answer to all that God has spoken into our world. And so that's what we're gonna talk about the first week is the promise of the king. Next week, we're gonna look at the king, look at his words, his life, and then the last week, we're gonna kind of look at like his kingdom that's coming. But I just wanna, I wanna start by basically saying, okay, when Jesus is born, the whole world like experiences this like message of joy. And the reason is because it's a fulfillment of promise. Well, what is that promise? Um, well, today I've chosen as my text the entire Old Testament. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm serious about that, by the way, I'm serious. So we're not actually gonna be in like one text because what, what Jesus is answering isn't just like one specific verse, he's answering the whole story. Like the whole history of the story of humanity. Jesus is coming as a fulfillment to everything that God has spoken into the world. And so if we're gonna understand how Jesus fulfills that promise, we actually have to go back to the very beginning, okay? So this is a Christmas sermon, but we're gonna start way back in Genesis one, okay? And the story of the Bible, it begins in a garden, right? And the picture that the Bible gives us at the beginning of our story is actually of a very different world than the world that we find ourselves in today. The Bible says that the world that we first were kind of brought into was a world that was so filled with life and so filled with goodness and beauty that when God looked at it, when, when the creator saw it, he said that it was good. And not just good, but like very good. 
that God originally created the world to be brimming with all the fullness of life of the one who created it. And in that world, he kind of cut up the soil and, and he worked the earth and he planted a garden. And then God took our first two parents, Adam and Eve, and he put them in this garden and it was their home that God had formed and built and his fingerprints were everywhere that they would look. Right? And if you've kind of been in church for a while, you kind of know some of the story, right? That God gave them like trees for food and God provided for their every need and they were naked and they were unashamed. As they experienced the exhilarating freedom of knowing and being known by their creator who himself walked with them in the cool of the evening. Now it's important that we, we start here, okay? We start here. Like this picture the Bible gives us of the way the world was meant to be. Because everything that it means for Jesus to be king actually has to do with like pointing backwards to that world. Right, this is a glimpse, it's, it's a picture of the world that was meant to be and as the Bible gives us this picture, we realize that it's actually a picture that is nothing like the world that we currently experience today. Right, this picture the Bible's giving us of saying this is the way the world was meant to be is a world that's not like ours. It's, it's a world that's not bar- marked by any of the scars of death that mark our world. It's a world where there is no war, there is no oppression, there is no injustice, no evil. There are no doctors there because no one ever gets sick. It's a world where friends don't die, it's a world where parents don't get divorced, it's a world where people don't grow old and die and love doesn't grow stale. It's a world where God reigned as creator and ruler and friend. But it's also a world where God has placed us in charge of his creation. It was God's world, it was his creation, and his glory and his fingerprints, they cover everything. But when God created humanity, he created us unique from everything else. This is what happens in Genesis 1.26. It says that we're created in his image. It wouldn't just be that we have his fingerprints on us, like everything in creation, but actually we would be created in his image. After his likeness, of all the things God made, he put the most of himself in us. And because of this, what God did when creation was complete was he looked out at the good world that he had made and he like took the keys to this place and he like threw them to us. He's like, this world, I made it, but I'm giving it to you. Be the kings, be the queens, rule over this place. I'm giving it to you. And you're saying, take care of it. Make it even better than it is now. Take the goodness and glory that exists around you and take the goodness and glory that I've put in you and actually spread it out over the whole world, the whole face of the earth. Now, I want, I want you just to think about that for a moment, okay? Like, try to, try to imagine it. And it's hard, it's hard to imagine it, right? It's hard to imagine a world without evil. It's hard to imagine a world without death, a world where God isn't kind of an abstract idea or concept or he's not just someone that we pray to, but he's someone that we walk with and someone that we talk with is like the light of the sun like paints the hills red around us. Like what, what would it feel like to sink your feet into the grass of that world? A world where there is no sin, there is no evil, there is no death. What would it be like to taste fruit from those trees or to walk by leopards and wolves without fear, but as someone who like knows them and who 
has named them and someone who has dominion over them? What would it be like to look into the undying eyes of another human being who perfectly radiates the glory of God? But this isn't the world that we live in, right? And when we turn on the news, it's like, yeah, it's a very different picture we see. And when we step into our own families and our own relationships and even our own lives, it's a very different experience of the world that we have, isn't it? Because as we turn the pages of the story, we see that actually there's an intruder that enters into God's good world. And in Genesis 3, we watch as a serpent slithers into the garden of God and we watch as his words, his lies, slither into the hearts of our first parents. And in the story that the Bible gives us, we only get a glimpse of this moment. Like it doesn't give us much, it only gives us a glimpse of this moment, but it is a moment that sets the stage for the whole rest of the story that we find ourselves in. And I wanna just kind of look at it with you. This is Genesis 3, and you're like, are you sure this is a Christmas sermon? I promise we get there. Okay, Genesis 3. After God created the good world, this is the intruder that comes in. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And, and he said to the woman, did God really say that you may not eat of any tree in the garden? And so the woman said to the, the serpent, no, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And so the serpent said, you, you will not certainly die. For God actually knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And it says that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was actually pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was right there with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. It's such an interesting part of the story, right? Because he promises that their eyes are gonna be opened and they'll be able to see the difference between good and evil. They'll be like God. And, and part of that is true is that their eyes were opened, but the thing their eyes are open to is how they're not like God. And the thing their eyes are open to is not that they can now define good and evil for themselves, but the thing their eyes are open to is that they're now covered with shame. And as the story goes on, and like the story of the Bible begins to unfold, we see that sin has fundamentally changed the world. Like the good world that God created, the way the world was supposed to be, we do not live in that world anymore. And the Bible is trying to like hammer that point home, because the very first story that happens after the Garden of Eden is of one brother, the first child born out of Adam and Eve's life. One brother murders the other in a field. It's the very first story of the very first children who are born into this world. And as the story continues, at the end of every person's story, we read this line. It just says, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died, and then they died. And it's like this metronome through our history that's like reminding us over and over again that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. The earth that was meant to be filled with peace is now filled with violence. And the earth that was meant to be filled with the glory of God is now filled with the blood of those who bear his image. The earth was meant to be filled with life and light, but it has become filled with darkness and it's become filled with death. And while death is kind of the climax and the final end result of sin working its way into our story, we see its effects in every corner of the world, don't we? Like it isn't just death 
right? Now we get in our car and you drive by a cemetery and like we should be startled by that reality, but it isn't just the final end result of sin that marks our world. No, it marks every corner of our world, right? This is why our world is a world with sexual assault. This is why our world is marked by cancer. This is why we experience depression, mental illness. This is, this is why even the food tastes the way it does, right? It's like pretty good, but you know it's not as good as it could be. It's like sin and death even affect that part of our world. It's like we eventually get bored even with the most beautiful things. It's like you can look at a sunset and it can be stunning and beautiful, but something in you just like after an hour of that, you get bored. Why? Because this world is a world now where beauty fades and love grows cold and even things that are marvelous and wonderful are all tainted by death. The reason that Satan went after Adam and Eve instead of one other animal in the garden was because we had the keys. We had the keys. We were the ones on the throne of God's world as his representatives. And when we listened to him instead of our father, what we did was we exchanged the truth and love of our creator for the lies and slavery of his greatest enemy. And because we're made in the image of God, he's also our greatest enemy. And when we did this, we didn't become gods ourselves as we were promised. We didn't become truly and completely free to define good and evil for ourselves. We didn't become free to define what would lead to our flourishing. No, but instead we became enslaved to a cruel master. One who doesn't care for us as his sons and daughters, but one who treats us as his slaves. And the Bible says that this is the world that we now live in. It's a world where we've been promised freedom, but we've been given slavery. A world where we follow desires that seem good to us in the moment, but they actually end up hurting us. Where we often listen to this voice in our head that leads us to do things that hurt ourselves and hurt the people around us. And where our slavery to sin and our obedience to this cruel master, it leads us all down the same well-worn road to death. And yet... As soon as sin enters into our story, God speaks. It's the very first thing that happens after sin enters our world. You see Genesis 3.15. We're told that even in the midst of judgment and even in the midst of the curse that sin has brought upon ourselves and on the world, we're told that there is a day coming. There's this promise that's spoken from the mouth of God that there's this day coming where God is going to restore all that is broken. A day is going to come where one born of the seed of woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, even while the serpent is bruising his heel. One day a human will ascend the throne of the world once again, and a king will rise and take over what a ruler has stolen from us. Once again, a human will ascend the throne. The Bible is a book filled with promises, filled with promises. And even on the very first pages, as darkness overshadows our story, God speaks. And in his words, we find hope and light and life that pierces through the darkness of our world. We have this promise that one day God will restore the world to the way it was meant to be. He will destroy the works of the devil. And it says that he's going to somehow do it through a human being. 
And as the story continues, our world doesn't get brighter, but it actually gets way darker. As the story of sin unfolds and humanity continues to follow the voice of its new ruler, once again, God speaks. And of all the families of earth, God chooses one man whose name is Abram. We know him as Abraham. And God promises him, and he says, Abraham, I promise you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He's going to take the man and the woman who are childless and don't have any family, and he's going to give them a family. And what he said is he's going to actually bless him and bless his family. And actually, out of Abraham's lineage, out of his family, the entire world is going to be blessed. And as God's promise is spoken into the world, God does what he said he would do, and he gives Abraham his family. And Abraham's family, it grows and it grows and it grows and God blesses them and he conquers their enemies and he sets them apart as like his chosen people. And he frees them from slavery and eventually he leads them into a land that he has prepared for them, the promised land. And as God blesses his people and as God's people ask for a king, God chooses the man named David to be their king. And once again, God speaks And God speaks to King David and God tells him that it's actually through his line, through his family, that he will establish a kingdom that will have no end. That through the line of David, there's going to be a king who will come who will bring justice and peace to the world, not just for a time, but forever. But David doesn't bring peace. I'm named after King David. And he's a man after God's own heart, but he's also a man whose life is filled with sin and filled with failure. David doesn't bring peace to the world. He can't even bring peace to his own life. And then David's first son, Solomon, he doesn't bring peace to the world either, but actually what he does is he actually brings like the worship of idols from the other people around him. He brings that into God's family. The deceiver, the serpent, is still speaking as well. God's promises rest over humanity, but there's still another who speaks to them. And what happens is one by one, the kings of God's people, they choose to follow the voice of another. And as the Old Testament draws to a close, we watch as one by one, the kings of Israel, they follow that voice. And injustice and oppression and evil, they seem to swallow up whatever hope, whatever promise rests on the people of God. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament all the way through, but when you get to the very end of it, it's, it's really sad. But it is in the middle of God's people failing. It's actually in the middle of the kings of God's people being conquered by the nations around them that once again God speaks. And what God speaks is something, it's, it's incredible because he's like speaking through his prophets to his people who are being conquered and hauled off because of their evil and injustice and how badly they failed. As that is happening, God speaks and he says, no, my plan hasn't failed. He says, a human will sit on the throne. In Daniel 7, it tells us that one like the son of man, he will receive power and dominion. He will take back the throne and bring goodness and light and peace into this world of darkness. And in Isaiah 7, we're told that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign that behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then a couple of verses later in Isaiah 9, it says, but in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. There's this thing that's gonna happen in this place in the world called Galilee. 
And the people who walked in darkness, they're going to see a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then in Micah 5, we read, But you, O little town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, for out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. God promises, even when the light is the darkest, that he has not abandoned his people and he will do it. But how? How? And, and more importantly, maybe who? Who will be a human that will once again ascend the throne of the world? Who will this offspring of David be? Who will be the one who will bring justice and peace? And whose kingdom will last forever? Who is the one who's from the line of the family of Abraham who will bless the world? Who's this one who will be born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent? The throne of this world, it was given to humanity. And it was given away by humanity. And it means that only a human can once again ascend the throne and take back the power from the current ruler. But who? Who is this one from the line of Abraham, the son of David? Because all have failed. All have failed. All have followed the voice of the serpent. All have not only failed to conquer the one on the throne, but they've actually all lived their lives following the sound of his voice. They've all been deceived by him. There's this moment in Revelation 5 where, where John has this vision, and in the vision, there's the one who's seated on the throne. It's like God the Father. He's on the throne. And in his right hand, he holds a scroll. And, and the scroll is like the plan for the fullness of salvation, but it's locked. It's locked. And only the righteous human being who can ascend the throne can unlock this scroll and unfold salvation for all people. And there's this mighty angel who's standing next to the throne and he shouts out like over the universe. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy? Who can fulfill the promise that God has written over the story of our entire world? And in John's vision, it is though like the entire history of humanity passes by in a moment because no one in heaven or no one on earth can open the scroll. No one can even look inside of it because no one is righteous, no one is worthy, no one can ascend the throne and battle the ruler of this world because all have bowed before him, all have followed him, all humanity has failed. And it says that John weeps loudly. And this is how the Old Testament ends. God's chosen people have failed. 
There is no human who is worthy to ascend the throne. There is no king who is worthy to take the scroll. And one by one, the tribes of Abraham's family, they're conquered by the nations around them. They don't bless the world, but actually in their sin, they end up being just like everyone else. And in the end, they're conquered by the nations around them. God's people are scattered into the nations and eventually only a small remnant survives and, and they try to put back some of the pieces as they come back to Jerusalem. And then there's 400 years of silence. For 400 years, God doesn't speak. God doesn't manifest his presence in the world. It's just a kind of darkness. And so one of the questions I've been thinking about is, how do we view the promises of God? Like the, the promises of God, because we're in this moment in human history where like God's word has like spoken and he said something will happen, but like the darkness has closed in and every single thing that's happening in the story of humanity seems like that actually can't possibly happen. It's impossible that a human will ever be on the throne because every human that's ever existed has failed. It is impossible that God will one day redeem these people because they're so filled with sin, they're so broken. It is impossible that this broken world will be once again turned back into the good garden it was created at once to be. So what do we do with the promises of God? When it seems like it's impossible that they're gonna happen. It's like you're, you're looking at your life and you see God's promise here and you're looking at your life and you're like, this isn't happening. Like I'm watching it not happen. I'm watching it fail. Like you said this, but this is what's happening. And so what do you do? When the thing that God has spoken over you, when your life and your circumstances seem to say like, oh no, it's not actually gonna happen. It's not true. Well, God's people, they rebuild the temple they gather together and they try to worship God even though he's nowhere to be found. And what they do is they cling to the promises of God because it's all they have. And after 400 years of silence, God's voice once again pierces the darkness. And while the New Testament, it starts with prophecies and it starts with angels who show up to kind of announce this moment, the moment that the voice of God came piercing into our darkness, the moment that God's voice would shatter the silence, it came on the edge of a small town called Bethlehem, the city of David. And the moment that God's voice shattered the darkness again was the sound as a small baby took its first breath and started crying. Hebrews 1 says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The way that God would fulfill his promise to save the world through a human being, even though every single human being has failed, would be to be born into the world as a human himself the unchanging, undying, eternal author and sustainer of life would put on human flesh. He would become like us so that he could do for us what we could not do ourselves. 
the one who has no beginning and the one who has no end would be given a father. He'd be given a mother. He would be given a lineage. The one who spoke the stars into existence would become so kind of small and fundamental that he would have to learn how to speak. The one who holds the universe in the palm of his hand would become small enough to fit in the palm of your hand. A lot of times I think when we, we think about Christmas, it's like we, we know that the baby in the manger is God. But I'd rarely think we ever actually stop to think about what that means. Like I think we rarely stop and actually think about that. How much did God, the infinite one, have to condescend himself to become this small Jesus was born as a human so that he could ascend the throne that humanity gave up. And this is why angels, they announce his birth. This is actually why wise men travel from like another culture and another land to bring gifts to lay at his feet. It's why the voices of darkness and the forces of darkness are kind of jolted into action against this child because he has been born to fulfill the promises of God. And he does. We're going to talk about that more next week, but, but he does. Jesus will battle the enemy of our world to the very end. He will face our deceiver and our enemy in our wilderness, and he will be victorious. He will be faced with every single temptation that we have ever faced, and yet he will not give in to the voice of the one who sits on the throne of our world. Instead, he will reject him, and he will conquer him. And in the end, he will be victorious. In John's vision... As there's no one who's found worthy, and John, he weeps loudly. One of the elders begins to speak, and he says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And this lamb goes and he grabs the scroll out of the right hand of the one who sits on the throne. This lamb who was slain is victorious. He has conquered. But his victory has not come without cost. Jesus will be given a crown, but it will not be a crown of gold, it will be a crown of thorns. And Jesus will be lifted up he will be enthroned, but it will not be on a normal throne. It will be on a cross. Jesus has conquered, and he has overcome the ruler of this world, but he has done it at the cost of his life. He's done it at the cost of his life. Jesus fulfills every single promise that God has ever spoken into the darkness of our world. Jesus fulfilled them. And the only way he could fulfill those promises was to purchase the answer to those promises with the cost of his own shed blood. And you need to know that, Christian. You need to know that. God fulfills his promises that he gives to his people, even if it costs him his life. There is no promise of God that goes unanswered. There is no promise of God that goes unfulfilled. He will say yes to all of those promises. That's what Paul says in the New Testament. He says all the promises of God, they find their yes in Jesus. Why? Because he is king and he has conquered. 
One of the reasons that the Bible spends so much time showing you that Jesus kind of answers all of these promises of God, even like the, the, the details, right? It's like, like thousands of years, like hundreds of years before, like 700 years as Isaiah's prophesying this. Like it says, this is the city that's gonna happen, Bethlehem. Like one of the reasons the Bible is like so serious about showing you how all of these things work together, Jesus fulfills all these pro- prophecies in the Old Testament is so that you would actually stand and you read this book and you would go, oh my gosh, Jesus actually is the one who's promised from so long ago. He actually is the one who God said would come for us. He is our king. He is our savior. And we need to put our trust in him. But one of the other reasons the Bible takes so much time and effort to show you that God answers all of his promises is so that you would be someone who sits in this room today and you would believe that if God answered his promises then, that he will answer them now. It was really dark and it seemed really impossible for God to possibly answer the promises that he had gave through the story of the Old Testament. And he went to such unbelievable lengths to say yes to those promises and answer them that God slammed himself into a finite human body. And then he would take that body of flesh, of weakness, of frailty, and he would allow it to be hung on a cross and he would allow it to bleed out and he would die. If God was willing to do that, to fulfill the promises that he gave us in our history, then we can be absolutely confident and sure that he will fulfill all the promises he's given us in the future. Because in order to fulfill those promises, he had to become a human being. He had to ascend the throne and he had to die. And in order to fulfill these promises, the only thing he has to do is come back. The price has been paid. He is on the throne. His kingdom is coming. He is the king. We're gonna spend two more weeks looking at this. But this is the promise that the whole world has been leading up to, that a king would be born, and his name is Jesus. And we get to worship him as Christians this season. Let's pray. Jesus, it almost feels like a, <laughs> an incomplete sermon to kind of end right where this amazing news begins to start. And so God, we're, we're excited for next week as we get to just hear you come as this king who's been born into our world and you're gonna speak to us and you're gonna call us to, to follow you as our Lord and Savior. You're gonna speak to us and say, come, follow me. I am the king of this world and I'm laying claim not just to the earth, but I wanna lay claim to every single part of your life. And so Jesus, thank you for fulfilling the promises of God. Thank you for doing it at the cost of your life. Jesus, thank you that we celebrate Christmas. Not just that the world has hope again, but that that hope is sure, it is secure, that your promises have been fulfilled and the promises that you've given us to look forward to as you return, we can have confidence that you will answer those yes. We love you, in your name.